Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, John chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we want you to have one. As our gift to you, we want everybody to own a Bible and be able to follow along as we look at the Bible. So the guys have some. They'll be making their way back as they do. Just get their attention. They'll get one to you. And please keep that as our gift to you. And John chapter 20 is marked in those Bibles. We're closing in on the end of our series, the title of which is on the screen, Meet Your Maker, as we look at the Gospel of John and we see in the pages of that book, Jesus Christ, our Creator, our Savior, our Lord, revealed, made known there. We'll finish John 20 here soon and then the last chapter, John 21, and we'll conclude our study together. Catechism was mentioned. Catechism can be a scary word for those of us who didn't grow up in more liturgical, formal circles, and so we didn't uh, do catechism. I didn't grow up with a catechism, and so we think that's just what other people do, but the word catechism is actually a good good word. It's uh, just teaching. To be catechized just means to be taught. And most often that teaching would take place in a question and answer format. And so thus you had question 32 of the Westminster Catechism. And there are a number of questions that young people in particular were encouraged to memorize to give them a solid foundation on the teaching of the Bible. So a question and answer kind of catechism format is a very good thing. Our Wednesday program, Kids for Truth, is actually based on that sort of notion, teaching children truth through a question and answer format that they memorize uh, over time on key doctrines. Westminster uh, Catechism was developed in the 17th century in the 1600s. It's a very solid uh, uh, doctrinal uh, composition, particularly for young people, but for people of all ages. Today, John chapter 20. We rightly attach, wouldn't you agree, significance to someone's last words. What somebody says with their dying breath most often indicates what's important to them. Those of you who are history buffs may know that our second and third presidents were John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, respectively. And Adams and Jefferson were political rivals throughout their lives. In fact, uh, they followed each other in succession as presidents, but when Adams was our second president, Thomas Jefferson was his vice president. Not because they ran on the same ticket and because they agreed, they didn't run on tickets back in those days. The way the president and vice president were selected were guys just ran against each other, and whoever got the most votes became president. And whoever got the second most votes became vice president. And so here you had Adams and Jefferson in the same administration, and they disagreed on many, many things and didn't like each other personally, for that matter. This went on for, for many years, but in one of the great twists of providence, When it came time for them to die, both of these men died on exactly the same day. In 1826, these two men died. And they died not only on the same day, but of all days, July 4th, 1826, they both died. And Adams said, as the last three words that came out of his mouth, he said on his deathbed, July 4th, 1826, Thomas Jefferson survives. Now, Little did he know that just a few hours earlier, Jefferson had actually died. But what was on Adam's mind? What was important to Adam's? What had been consuming Adam's 
throughout most of his adult political career. Clearly, it was this guy, Thomas Jefferson. Final words indicate what's important to us. We find famously in Scripture, the last words of the great apostle Paul in the last chapter of the last book that he penned in your New Testament, Second Timothy. The last chapter of that letter is chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he says these famous words, The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. But what are his last instructions, his final words to his protege, Timothy? What's important to Paul? In that very chapter, this is what he says to Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So what is said at the end of one's time indicates what's important to that individual. Now, as we look at John chapter 20, if we were to go back to, all the way back to chapter 13, many of you have been with us for the bulk of this study. And you may recall, beginning back in chapter 13, all that Jesus says and all that transpires after that is all one night up until chapter 19 when Jesus is crucified. On the night before Jesus died, he gathered his first followers in an upper room and he began to instruct them with his final words before his death and then sometime later his departure would come. Jesus gives these instructions, and now in chapter 20, he's giving further instructions after he is raised from the dead. And the words that we're going to consider today show what's important to Jesus. And because they show what's important to Jesus, therefore, they should be what's important to us. The importance of these words is not because Jesus will be dying, as was the case with Adam's, or with the Apostle Paul, not because he'll be dying. In fact, he's just raised from the dead when we come to chapter 20. These words reveal what's important to Jesus because he's going to be departing. He's going to be leaving physically soon. And what we find to be of utmost priority to Jesus in this passage is his message. His truth entrusted to these men, and then because of those men, entrusted to us to be proclaimed to the world. And that's why I say in the take-home truth that's in your outline, and I encourage you to take a look at the outline that's inserted in your program, that Jesus has given us his message. It's a message of peace. It's a message that we are to embrace for ourselves and that we are to proclaim, we're to give to others. That's what we're going to see then. In Jesus' words, before he departs from the earth. Verse 21 teaches us that Jesus' message is one of peace. Notice verse 21 of John 20. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Now, it was the evening of the first Easter. Earlier that day, Jesus had left the tomb empty. Jesus had not yet appeared to his disciples. And verse 19 of John 20 gives us a sad description of those first followers of Jesus who do not know yet that Jesus is alive. Notice verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, 
with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now picture the disciples there. Huddled together, cringing in fear. It says they had the doors locked because of fear of the religious authorities. They're cringing in fear. The doors are bolted. You can imagine them being in this room, talking to one another, recounting all that's gone on over the last several hours, probably speaking to each other in in hushed tones and listening as they speak for the sound of soldiers on the street, the very soldiers who had just a few days before crucified Jesus. And then suddenly the text tells us the risen Christ, the risen Lord, materializes. I mean, there he is. The word is chosen careful. Materializes. He just shows up. And there is his glorified matter. And as we saw before, when we looked at Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus rose from the grave, he left those grave clothes just neatly left where they were, if you recall. He simply stood up through the grave clothes, obviously in a glorified state. And John stresses here that the doors were locked, but suddenly Jesus is there. And here's the risen Christ just showing up in the middle of the room. And as he does that to these forlorn, scared first followers of his, his first words are, peace be with you. Now, peace was a common greeting in New Testament times. But this Easter evening, it took on particular significance coming from the lips of the risen Lord. Jesus breathed important significance into this common greeting of the day. And that it was important is shown by the fact that Jesus repeated it again in verse 21. He says it twice. Verse 21 actually says, look at it, it says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Later, John, who wrote this book, wrote four other books in your New Testament. He and the other apostles of Jesus unpacked the riches of that word in the New Testament, this word peace. In fact, the apostle Paul included that greeting, peace, in every one of his letters. It's that important. The Christian message, Jesus' message, is one of peace. And just as a quick aside. Many of you have probably heard the false claim, Islam means peace. Anybody ever heard that? Islam, the word Islam actually means submission. Now, it's true. If you submit, nobody will get hurt. Do what we tell you and there'll be peace. But don't buy into the idea at all that Islam means peace. Christ is the prince of peace, and his message is centered on peace, but it's a peace that is centered on our relationship with God. Not as many people think on things like international peace or peace in our domestic relationships, as important as those are. Primarily, the peace about which the Bible speaks is peace between an individual 
and the God from whom we all come into this world estranged. Christians are not to be people who somehow seek or promote war, of course. But we do recognize until the time that Christ returns, there will be, as Jesus said, wars and rumors of wars. And until the Prince of Peace returns, there will be no peace among those who do not know him. And so the message about which Jesus speaks is not first international peace or domestic harmony in our personal relationships. It's first and it's foremost about a transformed relationship with God. And so throughout the New Testament, you find the word peace used to describe our relationship with God, a relationship that's radically changed. This changed relationship is the very purpose for which Jesus came and he went to the cross. Let me remind you. The Bible teaches that every person born into this world is born in a state. Now get this, is born in a state of war against the God who made him or her. By nature, humanity opposes God, rebels against his authority, says, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. There are many of you sitting here right now who know the full effects of that foolishness. I'm going to go my way instead of God's way. You've lived it. You know what that's about. But that's our natural state. That's how, we, that's how we come into this world. Every one of us, myself included, by nature, humanity is determined to live according to our own rules rather than submit to God's rule. But God in His grace, about which we have sung today, God in His grace and mercy has planned a divine armistice. So that there can be peace between the rebels and the God against whom they're rebelling. God in his grace sent his son to pay the penalty for our rebellion against him. And hear this, there is a penalty. The consequence that you are experiencing right now because of your sin is not the ultimate consequence. The ultimate consequence is to be separated forever from God, paying personally Forever for the sin that we have committed in our rebellion against him. And it was for this purpose that he came. And it was for this purpose that he died as our substitute and he suffered the penalty that we deserve. And as a result of that, the offense that stands between God and me, between God and you, is removed. God is no longer then when the work of Jesus comes between him and us. God is no longer angry with us. Terms of peace now have been implemented. And some of you say, I need that peace. You can have it beginning today through Jesus Christ. And we're going to offer you opportunity to receive him and the peace that comes with him at the end of our time together. As you think about peace among those who were formerly at war, most of you are familiar with World War II. The Allies finally defeated the Axis powers. The final of those to surrender was Japan. And in 1945, aboard the USS Missouri, in Tokyo Bay, just off the coast of Japan, Douglas MacArthur was the commander of U.S. forces in the Far East, he received the symbols of surrender from the Japanese people. 
The Japanese had been defeated decisively as a result of the war in the Pacific, and they surrendered that day on America's terms. They were soundly defeated. What would you think if some of the Japanese commanders came in and said, okay, here's what we're willing to do? You see, it doesn't go that way. When an enemy has been defeated, they submit to the terms of their superior. And when we come to God through Jesus Christ, we don't make up our own terms. You don't make up your own terms. You surrender to the overture of his grace. I'm reading a book right now called House of Cards. A Tale of Greed, this is the subtitle, A Tale of Greed and Wretched Excess on Wall Street. It's a fascinating book. just came out a couple months ago. It recounts 10 days in March of 2008, just over a year ago, in which the meltdown of our financial system began. With the collapse of a financial firm called Bear Stearns. It's amazing to read about these guys and their actions as their company is going under. The president of the company was in, of all places, the very week the company's going under, he was in Detroit playing bridge. They're trying to get a hold of him to get him to come back to New York, but he's got this big bridge tournament. He can't make it back. <clears throat> they finally coax him into a conference call on Wednesday of that week. There are about ten people on this conference call. At one point, the conversation turns to him and there's something he needs to do, some information they need from him, and they mention his name, and then they say, Alan? Um, Alan? Alan's dropped out of the call. Why? Because he's going back to play bridge. Well, the company collapsed by the end of the week. The board members were frantic. They were trying desperately to come up with financing. Got the government involved. The government agreed to help. J.P. Morgan Chase by Bear Stearns, which they ultimately did. And yet, here's the board of directors. On the eve of their complete meltdown and collapse, as terms are being brought to them for their purchase and rescue, here is this board of directors saying, well, we can't agree to that. Well, guess what? You've got no choice. This is your only deal. It was the Japanese only deal. It was Bear Stearns' only deal. And guess what your only deal is in order to have a, re a, a relationship with the God from whom we've rebelled? It is found in none other than Jesus Christ, the one who alone can give us peace with him. God says, by nature, you're in rebellion against me. And if you want peace, you'll receive it the way I provide it. Jesus, his son, died to reconcile you to him. And God says, if you're going to come to him, it's going to be by faith in Christ and what he's done and in nothing else. Jesus says, peace be with you. And that's a foreshadowing of the message of the entire New Testament. Paul would say in the book of Romans, I have for you on the screen, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' message is one of peace, peace with God first and foremost. But it's also a message that's been preserved for us, and that's the second item I have in your outline. In the last part of verse 21, Jesus says this, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them, and he said, 
receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two things taking place here when Jesus does this. Jesus is commissioning them to record the word of God. And then he empowers them through the Holy Spirit to accomplish the task, the actual task that he commissioned them for, recording the word of God. When Jesus says this, I am sending you, and he breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit, the first thing that's happening is he's commissioning them to record the message. If we're going to understand what verse 21 means, the first key is to understand what he, when he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. The key is to remember that we've encountered similar words earlier in the book of John. Will you hold your finger here? And turn back to John 17. And as you're doing that, remember this, those of you that have been with us in John 17, the entirety of the chapter, all the way through verse, through the end of the chapter, is a prayer of Jesus to the Father, and it falls into three categories. It's broken into three sections. Jesus first prays for himself, then he prays for his apostles. And then at the end of chapter 17, he prays for all those who will believe as a result of the apostles' message. And in verse 6 of John 17, Jesus begins to pray for his first followers, his apostles, the people to whom he is talking in John 20. And he says this in verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Now here Jesus begins to describe his purpose for coming. He had revealed God the Father. How had he revealed the Father? Verse 8. I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Jesus had revealed the Father to his first followers, the apostles, by giving them the words that God gave to him, Jesus. And Jesus says, when I gave them the words that you gave me, they believed that you sent me. And then he says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. It's the same terminology as chapter 20 and verse 21. So now Jesus appears three nights later and he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He's talking about the same thing. What did he send them to do? In verse 20 of chapter 17, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So in this great prayer in chapter 17, Jesus begins by saying, Father, you sent me here to reveal you. I've done it by giving my followers your word. Now I'm sending them with that word and others are going to believe because of that word. And now in chapter 20 and verse 21, the risen Lord, having accomplished his work, all that he came to do, he says to them, now is the time. Just as the Father has sent me with a message, I now send you with a message. Jesus commissioned them to record his message and then the Holy Spirit empowered them to carry it out. Verse 22 says, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
Now, many of you know that a few weeks from this point in your Bible, just a few weeks later, there's going to be a gathering of, yes, these men, but also some other of Jesus' first followers in Jerusalem. And there is going to come upon them power from the Holy Spirit to begin carrying out the mission that Jesus has given first to these apostles and then, by extension, to his church as well. But what Jesus did here in John 20, in giving the power of the Spirit to his first followers, the apostles, is different than what he did on the day of Pentecost. It's different in that the apostles are being powered for something unique that the rest of the church is going to benefit from and use, but we're not empowered to do the same thing they did. Now, why do I say that? Remember that we saw on the night before Jesus died, when they were together in the supper room for the Last Supper, Jesus promised his disciples that they would be given the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to turn back, you can. You don't have to. But it's in the book of John, John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, I remind you of what Jesus promised to them. In verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. In verse 26 of John 14, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Notice what he will do for these guys. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. And in chapter 15 and verse 26, when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Now this promise given to these men on the night before Jesus died was an exclusive promise to them for them to perform the unique task that Jesus had for them to record his word and then to establish his church. And so Jesus tells them that they'll have perfect recall of everything he's told them. He'll remind you of everything I said to you. Now, if you can do that, then I nominate you to be an apostle. But you can't. And I can't. But they could because Jesus had commissioned them and then given the Holy Spirit to empower them to record his word and establish his church. This event on the evening of the first Easter is a fulfillment then of the promise made just three nights earlier. The empowering gift of the Spirit was given to the apostles on that night. The church as a whole is going to receive the gift of the Spirit in just a few weeks. But here the apostles are given the Spirit to enable them to do the unique ministry they were commissioned to do back in the upper room. They're empowered for the unique task of producing the message. And at Pentecost, the entire church is empowered for the task of proclaiming that message. Now, who cares about all this? Hopefully it's cold enough in here for you to still be awake. But why does any of this matter to us? Well, Jesus says, I'm sending you just like the Father sent me to give a message that is the word of God. And the importance is this. John is stressing to his readers that God has spoken. And if you want to know what God has to say, you look at the words written by those who were commissioned by God, the apostles. It's God's word. It's God's message. It's a message that's true. It's a message that holds authority over all creation. 
And then we're going to see that he sends us as well now to go out and proclaim that message. This has profound implications for what we do in carrying forward the work of Jesus. Jesus' final words before he departs show what he cares about. And what does he care about? He cares about his message. And he's reminding these guys about the message. And they are going to pen and proclaim the message. And they're going to be people who are going to believe it. And they too are going to proclaim it. This is the mission that I'm giving to you through the message that I'm providing to you, says Jesus. This is what he cares about. But notice what's most important in the mission of Jesus. It's not medical training for missionaries. It's not educational enterprises for our missionaries. It's not benevolence ministries for our missionaries. The most important thing in the mission of Jesus is the message of Jesus. Now, all of those things I just mentioned can be used as a means for us to carry out that message, to reach the people that God has called us to proclaim it to. But none of them are the mission. The mission is to take the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done as penned by his first followers and take it to a lost and dying world that needs it. And Jesus finishes by saying that his message is the priority. And that message, when proclaimed, will separate people. It will divide people into the only two groups that exist. Those who are forgiven and those who are not. To summarize this teaching, Jesus is saying that the message the apostles will produce is a dividing line. It separates all people into these two categories. Notice verse 23. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Say, wow. I need to get a hold of an apostle like pretty quick. These are apparently the guys who can forgive sins. And if they're the guys who can forgive sins, then I got to get with one of these guys like real fast. But here's the problem. Those guys are dead. And there are no apostles today. No matter what the guy on TV calls himself, he's not an apostle. Apostles had extraordinary, extraordinary gifts. They were even able to tell people to get up and walk. They were actually able to tell people who were dead to rise up, and they did. No TV preacher can do that. There are no more apostles. So what is this that Jesus is saying to them, if you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. And many of you know that our Roman Catholic friends teach that indeed. This apostolic authority is carried on through a class of people called priests. And so if you're going to have forgiveness of sins, you're going to receive that forgiveness of sins through the mediation of a priest. And we agree with many things uh, with Roman Catholicism. We believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus Christ came into this world in a unique, miraculous manner, born of a virgin. We believe in a number of things in common. But there's some very profound, profound differences. 
And one of them is here. You see, the Bible does not teach that there is a special class of people to whom you go in order to obtain forgiveness of sin. Now, why do I, why do I say that the Bible does not teach any such thing? Well, let me give you some reasons. If you care to jot down Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. There Jesus has an exchange, and Jesus had said to a young man, Your sins be forgiven, my son. And Jesus' detractors there said, But only God, only God can forgive sins. The first reason you don't go to a special class of people is because the Bible teaches only God can forgive sin. Secondly, the apostles, the people to whom Jesus said this, never did what our Roman Catholic friends do. They never did have people come to them for forgiveness of sins. Never. Now, once in the entire New Testament now, moving forward, as these men carry out the mission that Jesus gave them, do you find the apostles doing what Roman Catholicism says these apostle priests were commissioned to do? What you do find the apostles doing is this. You find them announcing forgiveness of sins in response to the message that is given out. They give the message. Those who respond, their sins are forgiven. Those who do not, their sins remain. It's in that sense that the apostles... And we, by extension, are instruments of God's forgiveness as we give the message and people either respond for forgiveness of sin or they reject and remain in their sin. And so you find Peter, one of the people to whom Jesus said what we read in John 20. Peter in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter says, All the prophets testify about him, Christ. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The focus is on Jesus Christ and simple faith which produces forgiveness of sin. And that's why commentator John Stott said this, The apostles understood that the authority of the risen Christ, that the risen Christ had given them, was the authority of a preacher, not that of a priest. Hear this. We preach forgiveness of sin. But we cannot grant it. Only God can grant it. But the message is what divides those who are forgiven and those who are not. And it's the message of the apostles. And by extension, it's the message of the apostles that we carry out. Here's another reason that the apostles are not and there is no special class of priests who can forgive sin and mediate the forgiveness of sin. Throughout your New Testament, there is no priesthood. There is but one priest remaining, our high priest, Jesus Christ. And that's why famously the Bible says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Luke describes a similar concept when in Luke 24, the risen Christ appears to two of his disciples and Jesus says to them in Luke 24, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. 
So what's going on here then between what the Bible teaches about forgiveness of sins and what some others teach about the mediation of a priest and forgiveness of sins? Well, did you know even most Roman Catholics acknowledge that in the final analysis, it's God who forgives. But here's what they would add. They would add that God does that in response to the action of a priest. The priest absolves and God forgives. And if the priest does not absolve, God allows the sins and the judgment to remain. And the Bible teaches that's all backwards. Hear this. God first forgives. And then on the basis of that forgiveness... Believers proclaim that this is so. Your sins have been forgiven because you have come to Jesus. And your sins are not forgiven if you do not come to Jesus. And how do you do that? Through the message that Jesus commissioned and empowered the apostles to give. Let me give you a couple of other textual reasons and then we're almost done as to why this is not a special class of priests, but is the message centered upon Christ that we are commissioned and empowered to proclaim. The verbs that are translated are forgiven and are not forgiven in verse 23. They're written in the original language in which your Bible was produced. Your New Testament was given in Greek. And they're written in what's called the perfect tense. It describes forgiveness that's already A fact. In fact, the New American Standard Bible translates it this way. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. The grammar makes it clear that the point is that what you do reveals what's already a fact. It's already been accomplished. And so, in fact, in the margin in the New American Standard, it says, have previously been forgiven. And one other very important point. The verbs in verse 23 are what are are called passive verbs. That means it's not the apostles who do this. It's God who does it. And so put simply, what Jesus is saying in verse 23 is that the apostles would produce a message that when preached will call for a response. And that response will reveal the true condition of the heart. And so we, like the apostles, declare that all who truly believe have been forgiven. And those who reject are not forgiven. And so the message of Jesus is the priority. And notice what I have for you in the outline. Those who embrace the message are forgiven. Those who refuse the message remain guilty. And so we must respond then to the message of Jesus. And the question for you and for me is how will we respond? I responded at age 19 to the message of Jesus. And my life has not been the same since. Because I responded to the glorious message of what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf on the cross, my sins past, present, and future have been covered by his precious blood. And I know that I can stand before him when my day comes, not if when my time comes, I can stand before him complete, not because I'm good, but because he is so good to me. That's the message. But I received that forgiveness and thus I am forgiven. 
But if you do not come to the cross of Jesus, you remain in your sins. I had the privilege this past week, this past Thursday evening, to be at the bedside of yet another man who is going to stand before the Lord, uh, it appears, very soon. He has cancer. Many of us have been praying for Patty Principe's dad. I had the chance to talk to him. Last Saturday, I had the chance to talk to Michael Lowe's dad in the hospital. And this Thursday, I talked to this man. And I was able to give him that gospel message. And I was able to make clear to him that when you come to Jesus, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are covered by Jesus' blood. And it was such a marvelous thing to hear this man appear to get that for the first time. Because he said to me, he says, I've asked Jesus so many times to forgive me. And I said, but you need to understand, you come to Jesus and his cross one time for deliverance. And he covers your sin, all of them in the past. And not only in the past, but in the future. And when I said in the future, he said, oh, that's what I need. And friends, that's what you need. If you've never come to Jesus Christ, his message has been proclaimed to you. And we're going to bow in just a moment and offer you opportunity to do that. But for those of us who have, we have a response as well. Because Jesus says, I've entrusted now this message to my church. And we are now people, when we've come to Jesus, who have been given his spirit. And we are to carry that message to his world. And so we must respond to this as well. Jesus says, so send I you. The apostles have gone out. They've done their work. They've established the church. They've given us his word. And now we're to perpetuate that by proclaiming the message of Jesus. Let's bow together then as we respond to the message of our Lord. Father, we thank you for this time that we could look into the pages of your word and see there the words of the Lord Jesus when he walked the earth. And Lord, we have seen that there are words there that require a response from every living being to the good news of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. Every one of us must come to the foot of the cross and we must acknowledge that we are hopeless and helpless sinners. That we've rebelled against you and the only remedy for that is the blood of Jesus on the cross. But if we will acknowledge that, if we will humbly come before him, recognizing that God has come as man to do for me what I could not do for myself because I'm unable. And acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me and I give my life to you. I'd lay my arms down, no longer at war with you, no longer a rebel, no longer going my way, but desiring with all my heart to go your way. I ask you to save me, forgive me. I give you my life. I pray that there are some who are praying that prayer right now and thus revealing the change of heart that you have affected in them. And I pray for those of us who have come to you, 
Lord God, move upon our hearts. Help us to see the beauty of the gospel message. Help us to remember that you have commissioned us with that message. Help us to remember that there are many, many who need that message. You bring them into our pathway. Help us to commit to being used as your ambassadors and your instruments to see the good news of Jesus Christ go forward. To the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.